There's a part of central Turkey where ancient cave churches and a landscape of fairy chimneys make for a setting like nowhere else on earth. When you go there, you feel that you are no longer on this planet, but you are somewhere else in the universe. Coming up, we explore Cappadocia. Scottish singer Jim Malcolm reveals the origins of his country's hauntingly beautiful ballads. Good tunes attract words, and in fact, our great hero Robert Burns, that's what basically he did. He would take tunes that he liked and pen beautiful words to them. Plus, guides from Northern Ireland explain what it's like to be from their corner of the island. I don't know, I think we get a bit of a bad rap. We tend to be seen as as rather serious, not like to spend too much money, keeping things to ourselves, a little bit uptight. Come along for a close-up look at Northern Ireland, the folk music of Scotland, and Turkey's Cappadocia. In the hour ahead, it's Travel with Rick Steves. It can warm your spirit to explore the traditions of another culture. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Scottish folk singer Jim Malcolm shares the music of legendary poet Robert Burns. And friends from Northern Ireland, one Catholic, the other Protestant, explain what it means to them to be from their corner of the Emerald Isle now that peace has replaced all that sectarian fighting. Let's start the hour with a look at one of the most unusual places you'll ever see. Traditional Turkish village life is alive and well in the Cappadocia region at the center of the Anatolian Peninsula. It includes amazing old-world history that you can see up close in some of the most otherworldly terrain on Earth. Lali Sermon and Yarin Turkulu from SRM Travel in Istanbul join us now to explore Cappadocia. Lali and Yarin, it's good to have you here. You're welcome, Rick. Merhaba. Merhaba. Thank Merhaba. you. Yarin, when you think about Cappadocia, we've got this exotic landscape. What is special about Cappadocia compared to other places? I think the landscape of Cappadocia is like out of this planet. When you go there, you feel that you are no longer on this planet, but you are somewhere else in the universe. That's really amazing. The landscape is beautiful and it's unique. And it's the result of a very intense volcanic activity. So, Lali, what is that origin? Because when Yaren says it's like out of this world, a lot of times people say that in this hyperbole, but Cappadocia of any place really is an out-of-this-world landscape. What's the geological reason for that? Approximately 60 million years ago, the volcanoes of the area were formed and they erupted continuously. And through these eruptions, volcanic ash covered the soil in Cappadocia, which was then absorbed by the local soil that had been on the ground in a new composition form that we call tufa, tough, that you are familiar with it in America. And this is a substance, a soil that can be eroded very easily. The elements, the wind, water, eroded it and carried away to a greater geography and an indescribable land formed as a result. They're like pinnacles. Fairy chimneys is the nickname. And on top of many of the fairy chimneys, we have a a big stone, a giant boulder. Like a mushroom. And what complements this dramatic landscape is the fact that people have lived there for centuries and centuries. And we have troglodyte communities. Lolly, explain how the history weaves itself in with these subterranean communities dug deep into the walls. The volcanic soil has an interesting feature. It preserves the heat. So settlers of Cappadocia did not need themselves to build things out of stone or out of other materials. They could just carve a cave into the soft substance and live in it, and they could expect the temperature to be constant through the year which made life a little easier in a geography where life was already very difficult. 
It looks fantastic to us today. It's an interesting area and the history is very appealing. But imagine yourself living in these caves in this rocky soil hundreds of years ago. It's not easy to cultivate on it. At least living in a place where you would expect temperature would be constant, sort of making life easier than it is. So this is very practical, actually. You can yes. dig through the soft soil, and then yes. when it hits the air, it becomes more hardened. Yes. And then if you want to pretend it's a church, you can just paint the uh, lines between the bricks on the wall, and it yes. almost looks like you've built a church out of bricks yes. when really you dug it People painted columns out. and domes and arches in the caves as if they were built, but they were just carved it's just out. It's just a little cheap trick. Yaren, you've been taking groups there for years. What is the most important of the communities that are built into the wall? There's a, a national site. Gureme Open Air yeah, Museum. Yeah, Gureme. Can you re- remind us the feeling you had when you first came to Gureme? I was amazed when I first went there, especially to see all those cave dwellings and the forming of the churches. The locals sanctified the caves, as Lila mentioned, by painting crosses and painting really very rural depictions of Jesus Christ and all those holy figures who resemble the locals there even today. And so t- it's really very interesting. And these churches survive to this day for us to see? Definitely. Many of them are still open to visitors. And when you enter, you can see the beautiful frescoes. Sadly, a lot of these beautiful frescoes have the faces disfigured. Who came through and, and crossed out the noses and X'd out the eyes? It's the Muslims, because in generally in Islam, it's not appropriate to have human depictions. Okay, so when the Ottomans came and took over, when the Turks came. Even in. before the Ottomans, when the Turks came, okay, when so they took over the region, you know. Who uh, was there before the Turks? It was the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire the Byzantine. that we call. Okay, yes. so it's confusing to me, but after the, when the Roman Empire sort of morphed into the Byzantine Empire, it was still more uh, Western and Christian and Greek, and then the Turks came in, and they brought with them their religion, and of course, in a Christian church, you can have a statue or a painting of a, of a saint or a prophet. But in Islam, according to their religion, you don't want to have images. So when the, when the Muslim Turks came, they would find these precious ancient churches and they would see these images and it wasn't uh, proper in their culture. Rather than destroying all the images, they would just cross out the eyes and break off the noses. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Cappadocia, the most exotic part, I think, for most people's visit to Turkey. Lolly, can you talk a little bit more about the art you would find in a place like Goreme and you look at these rock churches and also the, the layers of civilization that that terrain has experienced? Goreme Open Air Museum is a national park which is the home to most of the better preserved churches of the area. Cappadocia is historically very important in means of early Christianity. I want to refer to the early church fathers that lived in Cappadocia area, St. Basil of Caesarea and St. Gregory of Nazians. And St. Gregory of Nazians is known as St. Gregory the Trinitarian. The doctrines that these two men started shape the Christianity today. For this reason, the heritage there is amazingly important and interesting to know about. The art came to Cappadocia from Constantinople. It was the capital city. But when it came from Constantinople to Cappadocia, material is not the same thing. They wanted the idea, but they didn't have the same material. So they painted structures in the churches in means of wall paintings and frescoes. That is so interesting because when I'm in Constantinople, I see these incredible, you know, 1,500-year-old churches with beautiful art, very wealthy, very rich. And then you go to Cappadocia and you find this troglodyte village carved into the side of a Mm -hmm. a hill. You have the same culture, but much more humble. 
Yes, because they didn't have the material and they didn't have the money and they didn't have the artist. So they painted the interior of the caves as if it was built by arches and columns and domes. So you can see the bricks painted on the wall, but they're just paintings. But the idea was the same. They wanted to bring in the culture of the metropolitan city to their humble countryside living. And that was the idea. And some of these churches are intact, and we go and visit them. Now, one of the most remarkable and memorable sites in Cappadocia for me is going to the underground city of Kaimakli. This is actually where Christians were able to flee and go underground. Yes. These are like five or six stories deep, and thousands of people would hide out yes. uh, literally underground. Talk a little bit about Kaimakli and these cities. The Central Asia Minor has always been a crossroad for civilization. Previous to the Christian living in Cappadocia, there had been Phrygians, there had been Hittites, and there were wars the whole time. The early settlers of Cappadocia, of course, knew and enjoyed the features of the land, and they carved underground cities for protection purposes. They didn't carve them to live in them. They were carved out as shelters to hid in in case of a war. The newcoming settlers of Cappadocia, instead of building new ones, just kept enlarging the old ones, which Hittites got started. Oh, so this could go back to Hittite times a thousand years before Christ, and then... Two thousand. Two thousand. So there, yes, most of them were started approximately four thousand wow. years ago, and they were ever enlarged as necessity for so, a greater space. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been joined by Yaren Turkulu and Lali Sermon two tour guides from Turkey who join us in our studios here. You know, it's so fun to talk about all the history and the remarkable past of these places, but when you travel there, you can also connect with today's culture. Let's finish our discussion by just talking about how a traveler might connect with the culture and the people while they visit Cappadocia. Yaren, what would you recommend or the where best, would you take your visitors? The best way for a traveler to connect to the local culture today is to visit a village tea house or a town tea house. You can just enter, you will be welcomed, and you will see locals, men, uh, especially playing backgammon, sipping their teas. Some of them are retired men, older men. You will also see younger unemployed ones, actually. For the retired ones, probably their wives don't want them in the house all day. So it's a kind of a club for them. It's an inexpensive. It's a men's club. It's an inexpensive club. You can go there, maybe just drink two cups of tea, but you can spend your whole day. You can catch up with the latest news. Now, you are a, a young Turkish woman. Uh, are you, would you be comfortable going into one of these tea houses that are mostly uh, filled with men? Actually, they welcome women. They don't welcome the local women, but they do welcome tourist women. Tourist women or, you know, women from other cities. And you can easily start a conversation with them. And learn to play backgammon before you go and drink some tea and Definitely. put lots of sugar in it. Lolly, how would you as a tour guide introduce uh, some of the more uh, intimate dimensions of the culture in Cappadocia? As the cliche, I must say that first people need to get out of the tourist zone. That's the first thing. In Cappadocia, there are some areas which are very well known, but they are so touristy. And in some of them, there are no local life remaining anymore. Every single corner is either a pension, B&B, a restaurant, this and that. You have to get out of that area. And getting out of that area is not a very big deal. You just drive five minutes more. That's it. That's what I recommend people to do. And many people look for evening entertainment. They enjoy sightseeing the whole day. They enjoy a good dinner. And then they say, what's next? Of course, in such a touristy area in Cappadocia, there are folk shows that are geared for travelers, tourists. 
They're fun, but like Americans don't go square dancing every night after dinner, we don't go folk dancing in Turkey as well. So you shouldn't expect these to provide you a local entertainment. They give you a glimpse of the culture, but that's not what we do. What we do, we go to a Türkü bar. Türkü is Turkish folk songs. Türkü, T-U-R-K-U. Such as you have live music clubs in America, we have Türkü bars. And they would be playing traditional local folk music using the traditional instruments. And you can get to witness everybody sing along. Saz would be the main instrument. It's a string instrument with a long neck. That's one thing you cannot miss at all. With a little bit of luck, you can find an impromptu music session in a turku bar. Yes. Anywhere, if you can get yes. away from the tourists. Yes. Otherwise, you're going to see the touristic cliches on stage. Yes. Lali Sermon-Aran and Yaren Turkulu, thank you so much for giving us a better understanding of Cappadocia, one of the most fascinating corners of Turkey. Teşekkürler, Rick. Ben teşekkür ederim. Güle güle. Hoşçakal. Hoşçakalın. There's all my Turkish. <laughs> We have web links to our guests with each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll explore what it means to be from Northern Ireland in a bit. But first, let's get ready to host our own Burns Night, like they do in Scotland this time of year, with a visit from singer Jim Malcolm. He brings us a wee taste of the traditions of Scotland, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Camera ha with Rick Steves. My name is Ken Hanley, and uh, from Edinburgh in Scotland. And that was in Scots Gaelic for the I Travel with Rick Steves. Slans and yours I. When we heard that Scottish folk singer Jim Malcolm was touring the Pacific Northwest with a series of house concerts, we convinced him to carve out just a little time between gigs to stop by our Travel with Rick Steves studio near Seattle so you could meet him too. Jim receives high praise for his interpretations of the standards of Scottish music. He was voted Scotland's Songwriter of the Year by his peers in 2004, and he's been nominated for Scott's Singer of the Year more often than anybody else. You may have heard him as the lead singer of the group Old Blind Dogs. Nowadays, Jim travels as a troubadour of Scottish music with his guitar and harmonica, and he's an authority on the works of Robert Burns. To date, he's released more than 50 of his own songs on CD. Jim Malcolm's here to demonstrate how the traditional music of Scotland is a perfect way to appreciate the Scottish national heritage. Jim, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm enjoying your beautiful country as well. I think uh, Washington is like Scotland on steroids. You've got these extra big mountains at the back. You know, it looks just like Scotland. And then you have these big snowy ones that we just don't have quite as many. Yeah, and they're maybe four times as tall as <laughs> yes, yours. But, uh, my, yes. I've got a Scottish friend that said uh, we're more into quality than quantity when it comes to mountains. And the Monroes are quite popular in Scotland. Oh, God, yeah. I, I, what are the Monroes, by the way? Uh, well, there was this guy, this guy called Hector Monroe, Dr. Hector Monroe, who was the first one to climb all the the 3,000-plus mountains. I think it's 300 at 3,000. That 3,000 feet? Yeah. What's the state of traditional music in Scotland today? It's flourishing. Lots of young people are playing. And if you know where to go, and this is a part of it with finding traditional music, at musicians in pubs, they move around. You know, they, they have a place that they like and then they fall out with the landlord. The mm. landlord's not giving them enough free beer. So, right. they, so they move on to the next place. So you have to kind of have a bit of local guidance to just to find the best of it. 
if you go to the major cities, there'll be something on somewhere every night. Yeah, I was just know. in Edinburgh. I was, I was impressed. Yeah. Right downtown, there's five or yeah. six great, and it's generally free. Just go in and, and you know enjoy yeah. some beer and, and uh, have some fun with the musicians. I had trouble. I was at college in Edinburgh, and <laughs> you know, stopping going to these beautiful sessions rather than work. You know, it was like, it was every oh, yeah. night, it was like, oh no, I've got an exam tomorrow, but there's a really, really good session on. So, And the great thing is, yeah. it's just everybody's like a culture. So if somebody drops in, they know each other because you're a musician also, and you can uh, yeah. jump in and, and, yeah. and share. Yeah, and actually that's one of the lovely things about the travels that I have in the United States is that I, I meet up with musicians who love Scottish music, Irish music, and we, we have sessions here and stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. what is a session? Session is just when you get your stuff out and, you know, have a go. Somebody plays a tune, somebody else plays a tune. They say, oh, what? I know a song that was written by the same guy. And you know, but that can you know, be actually in a pub where you've got this little makeshift yeah, stage. Yes, you can have uh, sessions. They tend to be seeded by free beer. Right. Uh, that's the <laughs> that seems to be it, doesn't it? And these, uh, it's, you provide free beer and, and you'll find musicians who are willing to sort of sit there and play a few tunes for you. That's, yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Jim Malcolm. And, and Jim is... Uh, one of the leading Scottish folk musicians, and he's traveling around the United States right now on tour. He was the lead singer of a band called The Old Blind Dogs for eight years, and now he travels and performs solo all over the world. Uh, when he's not on the road performing, he's at home in Perthshire. Jim's website is jimmalcolm.com, and he joins us today talking about Scottish folk music. You know, Jim, the sparkle I see in people's eyes, local people, when they hear Scottish folk music, there's something really powerful about that for me as a traveler. What is it about Scottish music that can bring out the pride and the history and, and, and the heritage of Scotland for people who live there? It's very dramatic music, actually. Uh, and I think that it's because a lot of the music originates really from the pipes, from the bagpipes. I would say that it's been the single most biggest influence in Scottish music. It is the sort of national instrument. And because the bagpipes only has eight notes, mm. seven or eight notes. It's very limited. It's just one octave, really. Mm-hmm. That's very similar to the human voice. So so lots of bagpipe tunes have then become songs. You know, people have written words to the bagpipe tunes. I didn't realize that. What What's an example? You're a one-man band, so you've got your guitar and your harmonica. What's a piece that you would enjoy that really feels like it originated as a bagpipe Well, uh, I wrote some words to the, a very famous tune called Lochenside. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lochen is a small loch. Okay. Uh, you need quite a lot of phlegm to say it properly. <laughs> so it's a small lake, uh-huh. you know, and it's just all about the the, the wildlife around uh, a little lake. It's also such a famous tune that it's played, uh, always played before international soccer matches and rugby matches. Ah. It's just one of these kind of iconic... So it strokes the, strokes yes. the whole spirit yeah. of the team. Shines, it's a cheery, brings a bloom for Arjun's pride. Around the Lachan side, had you been yet seen scatter? Oh, the peasies, oh, the macha, when a boon, the tawny 
kleins haren vulgen zijn. De heren kan verkriepen, verdraag en sigrien en driepen ter pul. Waar wij het slijt, haren vulgen zijn. If you ever had reason to be here in any season, come and try the barley bread by the fire on the side. If you ever had a notion to be welcome with devotion, travel home or on the ocean. To be on Lachen Beautiful. Jim Malcolm, thank you so much. That's beautiful. Jim Malcolm joins us. He's one of today's top troubadours of Scottish traditional music. And uh, Jim, you took a folk tune there, actually, and, and wrote your own lyrics to it. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, but once I had done it, I discovered that uh, two other people had done the same. Uh, and actually, there's even an Irish version of it as well. So good tunes attract words, you right. know. And, and in fact, our great hero, Robert Burns, our great you know, poet and songwriter, that's what basically he did. He, he would take tunes that he liked and, and pen beautiful words to them. Bela Bartok did that in Hungary. Yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of Norwegians did yes, that. Edvard yeah. Grieg did that. Uh-huh. Uh, it's great to be able to draw from your folk culture and folk heritage. Mm-hmm. Where do you go to be inspired when you write a poem? Do you, do you actually, where do you uh, get in touch with the I, muses? Well, I, I have absolutely no trouble getting in touch with that. I, I'm a, a very keen fly fisherman. Okay, uh, and uh, that's that's what I do when you know when I'm allowed to. <laughs> when uh-huh. I get the time, when I you know I I live very close to a a really wonderful river called the River Tay, and, okay. and I, I'm spending most of my time fishing in in the River Tay, and that's you know I'm just surrounded by you know ospreys and otters and kingfishers and you know deer. Oh. When you when you're fishing, you know because you're being still and quiet, the wildlife actually comes to you. It sort of it creeps out of the bushes. <laughs> And this is something that's a challenge yeah. for travelers, is to yeah. find themselves in that kind of position where yeah. they really can uh, feel the quiet well, wonder of Scotland. take up fishing. <laughs> take up fishing. I was just driving across, going up from Rannochmore, uh, oh, yes, from, uh-huh. from Glencoe, and I just said, let's stop the bus and get out, uh-huh. just to get off the road and hike a few hundred yards yeah. up into the into the in the heath, or whatever you call it. Yes, it's, yeah. It's powerful. You feel the wind, you feel the heritage, you feel the the struggle of Scottish culture and Scottish uh-huh. tradition to stay alive. Yeah. Tell us about how that, the pride of Scotland, works into the traditional folk music today and what role it plays, because there is a big question of uh, how independent Scotland wants to be from London. 
it's a big part of it, really. There's lots of songs. Probably the most famous song uh, about about the Union is, is a Robert Burns one called Parcel of Rogues, in which the Parcel of Rogues were these aristocrats who sold out Scotland. To, That's what they're called, a yeah, parcel, of, parcel rogues. of Rogues. And yeah. Robert Burns, the great Scottish poet, sort of... Uh, Kindled Scottish spirit in the when, when did uh, yeah, when yes, was, well, well, he was born in fifty uh, nine and would have known uh, people who had kind of fought in the Jacobite campaigns and who had who had even possibly even been in Scotland when it was still independent. You know, so he was. At so a, when was he born? Time. Exactly. He was born in seventeen fifty nine. Okay, so he was performing uh, the same time that the Americans were breaking away from England. Well, it was he, this all yeah. over the place. People were feeling their national oats. Yes, uh, and in fact, he he wrote a song, a very famous song, "A Man's a Man for All That," which was directly inspired by the Revolutionary War. Can we hear just a little bit of this um, patriotic Robbie Burns traditional Scottish uh, folk? Is that Parcel yeah, of Rogues? Sure, is that but, a good one? Uh, I could do a, a bit of Parcel of Rogues. It, it's quite a, a melancholy song. It's quite a, in a minor key. Okay. Uh, it's it's more a sort of lament, really. So now you just picked out one of your harmonicas. I see there's like eight of them. They're one for each different uh, key. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Fair will Scottish fame. Farewell, ancient glory. Farewell, even to Scottish name. Safe and martial story. As our grand table saw sands and tweed runs to the ocean that stands to her forgotten the words. Oh, but uh, I think that takes me right there. It's just, you know, when you're in Scotland, you've got to get into a pub. Yeah. You've just got to ask at your bed and breakfast or your little hotel, where can I hear some folk yeah. music? And it can pop up anywhere. I was just in Inverness and we happened to have like one of the greatest evenings I've ever had uh-huh. in the next hotel. It wasn't even famous in Inverness for trad. Yeah. Do you call traditional folk music trad in Scotland? Uh, or is that an Irish thing? Uh, no, no. It's, I mean, I mean the, the Irish traditional scene and the Scottish traditional scene are, are very closely related right. and interrelated. And we have, there are bands which have, you know, Irish and Scottish players in them. You uh, know, it's, it's, oh, is that right? Real, oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, Celtic culture. Ireland and Scotland are like brother and sister. You know, it's a... Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is singer Jim Malcolm. Jim is celebrating this year's Burns Night with a house concert in San Diego. He has more concert dates coming up in California, Oregon, and Washington, ending up in Olympia, Seattle, and Bellingham. In the spring, Jim's planning concerts in the Mid-Atlantic, upstate New York, and New England. Tour details and his latest recordings are on his jimmalcolm.com website. Now, one thing I've noticed in Scotland... If you want to go to a traditional folk evening in some yeah. hotel, it's pretty cheesy these days. It's hard to find a good Scottish folk evening. Maybe they've always been touristy. But if you just go to a pub that's famous yeah. for the music, yeah. that's where you get all of this classic Scottish um, yeah. passion. More yeah. than on the stage of a fancy hotel where you got to have the 
ceremony of the haggis and all oh, that. Oh, yeah. Actually, the, these kind of kind of acts, the hackneyed ones. That yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you must know this about well, about about the whole the whole business of the guys who've been doing it are are just doing the same thing every night for years, and it just becomes. And they probably have the wrong instrumentation. I, I, I get a sense yeah. that it's sort of Lawrence Welkin yeah. Scottish, you know. The sessions, the sessions, are definitely give you more of a uh, of an immediate feel. And also, if you are, are a landlord and you're prepared to, you know, entertain musicians with a few beers. <laughs> and you'll find a session will develop. You need to be nimble. <laughs> when you're a tourist out on the streets after dinner, you need to be nimble. Talk yeah. to the locals. We're joined by Jim Malcolm, and he's a troubadour in Scotland. He tours the United States. His website is jimmalcolm.com, J-I-M-M-A-L-C-O-L-M.com. And uh, Jim's talking to us now about traditional Scottish folk music. You know, Jim, when you go to Scotland, uh, you get tuned into the underdogs and, of course, the Scottish standing up for their own independence and so they can play their music and speak their language and and wear their kilts uh, against the powerful English. (laughs) There's so many battles that were fought two or three hundred, four hundred years ago that are still alive today when you step into the pubs. What's a song that you'd like to close with that just brings Uh, us back to that exciting struggle? This is about a really spectacular battle called the Battle of Killiecranky, which was where the Highland Charge was first really used. And what basically, was the, Highland the Highlanders charge? would basically like just basically run down from the high ground with claymores, you know. They used to take off their 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 plaids, their you know their clothes, and, and actually attack in their shirts and against n- the redcoats, naked in their shirts with big claymores and just plowing. What are them. claymores? Two-handed sword. Oh my goodness! Like, and and sword. do I have this image of? Um, well-armed, uniform, red coat standing in formation. Sorry, going, uh, and you got all these crazy, barbarian, <laughs> yes. half-naked Scottish people screaming and running down with huge two-handed swords. Yes, yes. And this is it. Yeah. This is where it originated. The Highland, what do you call the it? The Highland Charge. Right. Well, it, it became a tactic used uh, very successfully by the, the Jacobite armies until the Battle of Culloden, where it yeah. failed mm. miserably. And by the way, when you're going to Scotland, you got to go to the battlefield of Culloden mm. and take mm. the tour there because it gives you a sense yeah. of... That was the last battle fought on British soil, I think. Yes, yeah, we fought lots of battles on other other soil since yeah. then. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's a whole other interview. Let's go to this uh, battle of what? Kill- uh, Killy Cranky. Killy Cranky. Killy Cranky. Come ye by, kill the cranky, oh, and ye have been what I have been. You were not been so cante, oh, and ye had seen what I have seen. On the praise of kill the cranky, oh, I fought it land I fought at sea, I had him, I fought my auntie, oh, but I met the devil and Dundee on the braze, oh, Killy Cranky, oh, and ye had been what I have been, you were not a handsome oh, and ye had seen what I have seen on the braze of Kilikrankeo. 
Jim Malcolm, thank you for taking us to Scotland. I want to get on a plane, go straight to Edinburgh, leave the big city, find myself in a little town, get a nice local beer, and enjoy some traditional Scottish folk music. Thanks again. You're very welcome. Cheers. look at what it means to be from Northern Ireland. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Nearly a hundred years ago, in 1921, Ireland was partitioned, mostly an independent republic, with the northern part remaining a part of the United Kingdom. The republic was mostly Catholic, and the north was mostly Protestant. But it's more complicated than that. The violence that Northern Ireland experienced during the days of the Troubles are thankfully a thing of the past, and a lot has changed since then. But Northern Ireland remains a place where identity can still be at the heart of so much of daily life. And the Brexit negotiations to remove the United Kingdom from the European Union are adding another layer of complexity there. To help better understand Northern Ireland, we're joined by Susie Miller, who identifies with the British and Protestant identity of Northern Ireland. Susie lives in Belfast. And we're also joined by Stephen McPhillamy, who was raised in a Catholic family in Derry in Northern Ireland. Stephen currently makes his home in the Republic in Dingle, but his heritage is in the north from Derry. Stephen and Susie, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million. Pleasure. Susie, there's so much more to Ireland than shamrocks and priests and Guinness. And of course, your family's from the north, and it's a different heritage. Describe the heritage of a Protestant family from Ulster. Protestant families from Ulster would tend to have come from Scottish or North of England stock. and They might have come pretty recently or they might date right back to the Ulster plantation from the 1600s. This was a concentrated movement of people into uh, what was seen as a rebellious part of the British Empire to try and calm things down. And so a lot of their descendants are still around. Uh, the characteristics, well, I don't know. I think we get a bit of a bad rap. We tend to be seen as, as rather serious, uh, not like to spend too much money, keeping things to ourselves, a little bit uptight. And sure, yeah, maybe a, a few of those traits could be seen um, within our psyche. But at the same time, um, we're a very self-effacing humour driven people, I think. We like to do ourselves down. We don't like to see anybody get above themselves and will, as we say, cut the feet from under them if they get ideas above their station. It's a very, very complex identity. And of course, it's different for everybody. You know, you can't apply one set of stereotypes across the board. I can only really speak for myself, I suppose, in this. But that is interesting. Five centuries ago, basically, London was having trouble with Ireland and sent over good uh, loyalist uh, folk who wanted some cheap land and opportunity and they probably subsidized and Mm -hmm. gave them an incentive to go over there and become settlers in what was uh, a Catholic and trouble-causing island. And now, five centuries later, good people with both heritage are living together. Well, yes, I had the Ulster Plantation... um It's interesting because it happened at the same time that Virginia was being settled. So you have the same solution applied to two different problems across the Atlantic. 
And uh, it was King James at the time. He thought this would be a great way of getting his loyal supporters in an area that was causing him trouble. If you signed up, you got uh, so much acreage of land. You had to build so many houses on it, bring so many other families with you and promise to maintain and and make this land um, arable, Uh, which is what happened. And it led to a lot of wealth uh, in that area and it made it a very attractive place to go. Mm -hmm. As we go down through the centuries, then you see this little corner of, of Ireland becoming industrial before the rest of, of the island of Ireland. And that was due to the fact there was more wealth around, uh, the discovery of, of turning flax into linen and uh, the money that that brought in. And then all these industries started burgeoning around that. So by the middle of the 18th century, you've got a very, very different landscape in the northeast corner of the island. By the middle of the 1700s then? Well, really, industrialization only came in about the 1820s. Uh, okay, so in the, basically in that period, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, we've got industrialization hitting it like mad and Belfast becomes quite a powerful city, linen and shipbuilding. Linen and shipbuilding side by side and a lot of trades feeding into those foundries and factories. So a huge population explosion in Belfast at that time. Stephen McPhillamy, now your family is a Catholic family in the north. What are the different northern Irish identities today? Is it that big of a deal? Have people gotten beyond that or is it woven into the DNA of everybody? You're always going to be from a Catholic clan and Susie's always going to be from a Protestant clan, even if you don't even go to church. Yeah, my people were the troublemakers, you see. So we were the the problem that got dealt with and it's just such a sensitive issue even like Susie and myself are good friends but we always have to just be careful around each other what we say Mm -hmm. and we probably would say different things then privately or to our own tribes you know but as I travel the world more now it just fascinates me that back in this little corner of Ireland there's two tribes that most people in the rest of the world would think are practically the same but we think we're comprehensively different you know Um, so my clan were up in the north uh, when when maybe Susie's ancestors came over. So it's very similar to what happened in Jamestown, Virginia, but also similar in the way that reservations were set up. So all the good land was taken off the Catholic chieftains and given to the Protestant settlers when they came over. Reservations, you mean uh, American Indian reservations? Yeah, so a, a map was drawn up of Ulster. You can see this map and it says... Uh, good land here, good land here, Scots settlers here, English settlers here. And then the big bog land, it says, reserved for the natives, you know. Whoa. So now this is so interesting. Everywhere in your travels you realize, oh, why is the ghetto in Rome right in this little bend in the river? Because that's where it used to flood. It was the worst land. It was the land nobody wanted. You've got situations uh, in any city, uh, downwind from the tannery, would be the poor people, and they'd have to deal with the smell. Yeah, and that's not to say that every Protestant in Northern Ireland was rich, because of course they weren't, but just traditionally the, the land that the Catholics were in was generally poorer and not not very productive, like it wasn't very good land. Um, so anyway, m- today my family, we would all identify as Irish, or our loyalty would be to Dublin. If someone said to me, if you come into my neighbourhood and say to a kid, what's the capital of your country? They would automatically say Dublin. But you go across the river to a Protestant neighbourhood and you say, what's the capital of your country? They would most likely say London. You know. Okay. But flying from the City Hall would be the Union Jack and a flag of Israel 
and then you go into the uh, Union House or something like that, and there'd be an Irish flag and a flag of the Palestinians. Susie, have you noticed that in Northern Ireland? Oh, flags in Northern Ireland. It's such a complex. I even saw a Confederate flag in a fish and chip shop, uh, an American Confederate flag, like, you know. Yes, yes. In a fish and chip shop uh in Northern Ireland. What's with the flags? Okay, so um, the first thing is that we're trying to get away from all that in the new shared future that that Northern Ireland has embraced over the past 20 years. Flags have become a contentious issue. So Mm. a lot of public buildings, for example, Belfast City Hall does not fly a flag unless... It's a particular occasion like the Queen's birthday or something oh, like that. that right? It's gone, yes. That's a because, constructive change. And, well, yes, uh, although it wasn't greeted with uh, the best of, what's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't embraced by the it, rank and file. It, it, well, from a particular section of, right. of hardline Protestant unionists, um, when those flags were taken down, yes, it, it, was, it was not a good move. However, as time has gone on, people have got used to that. But yes, there, there is this affiliation amongst the two tribes. One will fly the flag of Israel and the other will fly the flag but why, of Palestine. why would that be? What, I mean, is it because of settlers? It, it's uh, kind of an, empathy. an empathy. It's an empathy. An empathy. It's, it's exactly what it is. And I guess the same with the Confederate flag among some It's, it's not really good or bad people. It's You've inherited a complicated situation and uh, right now you've got what were the angry indigenous people that you put on reservations 400 years ago. Today you're trying to live together. Yes, and you you know you can understand how some of those grudges are maintained from four hundred years back. You know it wasn't the best idea to have this imperial country marching in and taking over, but you know Britain did it everywhere. It's not just in Ireland. Our guests right now on Travel with Rick Steves are Stephen McPhillamy and Susie Miller. Susie provides theme tours of her home city of Belfast around the shipbuilding of the Titanic. Stephen runs a guest house in Dingle in the southwest of the Republic of Ireland. They're sharing their views on what it means to be from Northern Ireland, from both a Catholic and a Protestant background. You'll find links to our guests with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. So let's look into the future now, and let's get beyond the flags and the, and the deep-seated uh, you know, divisions that were of nobody's fault today. What are some dimensions of uh, North Ireland culture that bring everybody together, Stephen? Well, there's quite a lot of things that do bring us together. I'll give you an example. We all like the song Danny Boy. Now, some people might say, well, that's a silly reference, but that's not really because, you know, it's, it's, it's an anthem that we would say have at sport events or things like that. So we have a, we have a quite a, a shared... Why, why would people like Danny Boy? Oh, it's, it's a song from the north of Ireland. Oh, it is? I didn't yeah, know that. sorry. Like Northern Ireland would send a team to the Commonwealth Games, you know, which is a bit like the Olympics for former countries of the British Empire and, and therefore the Commonwealth. So years ago... If a Northern Irish athlete won a gold medal, the song was God Save Our Queen. Some of the athletes, I think, must have objected. I don't think we ever actually won a gold medal, so it wasn't really relevant. But then they changed it to Danny Boy and suddenly we start winning. So now they play Danny Boy as the anthem. Now, some of you might not say, well, that's not the most rousing, passionate anthem, but (laughs) they put you to sleep. I love it, though. Yeah, and then we won a gold medal for uh, boxing and for uh, shooting. And somebody in Belfast started selling a t shirt saying, Northern Ireland, best best wee country in the world for fighting and shooting. And I think the Northern Ireland Tourist Board wanted them to, to ban the T-shirt. Oh, but it was so sports shooting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that that's probably could be misunderstood. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Northern Ireland with two Irish guides, Stephen McPhillamy and Susie Miller. You know, when I was last in Belfast, Susie, I went to the Scots Ulster Centre. A fascinating visit. It celebrated the, the Scottish settler heritage, I think, in Ulster in Northern Ireland. It felt a little bit like a publicity campaign for that idea. What is the um, agenda 
of the Scots Ulster Centre in Belfast. I guess here you would know them as Scots-Irish, but we call them the Ulster Scots. So Discover Ulster Scots was set up under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement to try and give a little bit of background to what this heritage was. People who were mostly Presbyterian in origin, who'd Uh moved from Scotland over to uh, the lands of Ulster, and then some kept moving west uh, and settled in places like Tennessee and, and Kentucky and what have you. It's people, I guess, who are mostly now around the coast of of County Antrim in in top north corner Uh of Ireland, who probably would feel more at home in Glasgow than they would in Dublin. So that Scottish um, orientation, it's just a 10 or 15 miles across the water. It, it is, it is. You know, yeah. on a clear day, you can see it. Um, and these are people who, they love the poetry of Robbie Burns, for example, Old Lang okay. Syne and all so of Scottish, that. Uh, that's that Scottish flavour. Uh, well, it's the Scots-Irish in Northern Ireland. That's it. Hey, Stephen, you know, the big issue for me these days, is, or the big question is, with England and Britain voting Brexit, they want to leave the European Union. Of course, the Republic of Ireland, I think, is pretty enthusiastic about staying with the European Union. The beautiful thing lately is Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have essentially no border. But if Britain succeeds in leaving the European Union, you're going to have to have a hard border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Exactly. How are they going to deal with that? Well, it's it's a big issue. Now, my hometown, Derry, is right, which of course is sometimes referred to as London Derry by the by the Protestant community, is right on the border. So it's really going to have an impact. And the word that's been used as the phrase is hard Brexit. Will there be a hard physical border? Will there be security guards on the border, which we've all agreed was a good thing to get rid of? You know, we campaigned and right. we all worked together to get rid of the, all the security apparatus. Is that going to come back? Britain, a lot of the people who voted for Brexit want tighter immigration control in the UK, but that will also mean, therefore, Northern Ireland. So if you're going to have immigration control, that usually implies more security or guards. Customs posts, stop the car, check your ID, this kind of thing. Um, I think it's important to to say that 55% of the electorate in Northern Ireland voted to remain in the European Union. In Northern Ireland. So they got outvoted by their fellow United Kingdom countrymen. Yeah. And they have to go along now with something that that part of United Kingdom did not want. I think a problem that we have to remember from a European Union point of view is you can't make a special case for Northern Ireland even if you think it would be a nice thing to do because then there's many other countries that would have a similar argument and they would say, but you gave it to Ireland you got to give it to us now. Yeah, but the European Union is pushing very strongly, putting pressure on the UK to give Northern Ireland special status. And the Republic of Ireland's pushing for it too, along with its European partners. Hmm. So, so there's a likelihood that we could have an exception there and keep the border open. Yeah, the Republic of Ireland, who my community would see the Republic of Ireland as our protectors, you know, like our big guarantors. So we look for them to advocate on our behalf in the European Parliament and, and maybe in dealing with the United Kingdom. But they're pushing for that the European Union's market policies and things like that will stay the same in Northern Ireland. So, Susie, what's your um, prediction for the the way this is sorted out? Ah, uh, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, it's been many months since this Brexit referendum took place. And to be honest, we're no closer to a solution. The politicians are holding discussions, but nobody has really come up with the firm answer. We seem to be moving towards a soft border. The new Taoiseach, the new Prime Minister in Ireland is certainly very keen that we don't have this hard customs post-driven idea of a line drawn. 
But, you know, reality is that it's a, a way to get into the UK or, or the other way to the EU if you don't have some sort of control. Maybe we have something like akin to between Canada and the US where it's fecal registration recognition. Uh, nobody really has come up with a firm answer. I've started to see in quite recently crossing back and forth between Belfast and Dublin that for the first time since the Troubles ended, we are having passport checks hmm. uh, randomly as you go up and down in public transport. So I think things are being tried, but nobody has come up with a firm solution yet as to what it's going to be. Susie Miller hails from Belfast and Stephen McPhillamy is from Derry. They're with us on Travel with Rick Steves to share their perspectives on what it means to be from Northern Ireland. You know, this is a ridiculously complicated um, issue that I'm going to ask you to give a very short and simplistic answer to. But I am so inspired by the success of Ireland to overcome the troubles and to get uh, people who were fanatic on both sides to put down their guns. What do you think has been the secret to the success of Ireland finding peace that other people engulfed in sectarian struggles could be learning from? I think once we had the first shoots, the green shoots of peace, and people could see the benefits of that, it was embraced by 90% of the population. How we got there was a long, hard road. But once we started to see the benefits of it, we all got behind it. And I have to say, I'm immensely proud of how far we've come. Stephen, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that we also can be thankful for our big, good friends around the world who sort of helped us along. Like we had politicians coming from America, from Canada, straight. You know, we have. There's so many Irish people have gone all over the world. People from the north of Ireland have gone all over the world to settle, and now there's a lot of goodwill towards the place. So we had a lot of very positive outside influence that came mm-hmm. in and said, "Look, you've got a big problem here." you need to fix it, we'll help you on the path along, but you need to do it yourself. But we'll help you, we'll give you a framework for it. So President Clinton sent over Senator George Mitchell. Initially, there was a lot of hostility to him, I think it's fair to say, from some of the hardline loyalists, because they didn't want an American coming in and telling the local British what to do. But he created a framework called the Good Friday Peace Agreement, Mm -hmm. uh, along with others, but he was like the the architect of it. And it was really a remarkable piece of political manoeuvring, because he got two warring tribes to sign up to a peace agreement that stopped the killing. You know, it's interesting. We think of the Irish diaspora, and there may be five or six million people in Ireland, and there's probably ten times that many all over the world or something. Uh, They've actually, sadly, funded a lot of the extremism. But what you're saying is they also empowered a lot of the peacekeeping. Yeah. No. So there is this fact that Ireland, it's spread all over the world through the diaspora, and uh, there's been a lot of people involved in this, both good and bad. I would think the good things that the diaspora has done for the Northern Irish political situation completely outnumbers any negative things that would have been done, such as maybe providing money for guns and things like that. There's a a lot of good initiatives went on. Well, that's great news. And (laughs) there are a lot of people pulling for the peace process to have deeper and deeper roots. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, survive the uh, craziness of this uh, uncertain Brexit period. Stephen McPhillamy, Susie Miller, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of a of a complicated and beautiful place to uh, both live and travel to. Thank you. Thanks, Rick.
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Find out how you can be on the show with Rick and his guests at our next batch of recording sessions. Details are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll find guidebooks for London and for England, Scotland, Ireland, and Great Britain. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.